to our walk through the book of John. And this morning we're going to continue in chapter 3. We'll be looking at verse, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Let me read this section and then we'll dive right in. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. In parenthesis, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they, John's disciples, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's face, voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And I'll, I'll save the last two verses un, until the end. Today, as I said, we will continue our study of the John's Gospel. I'm not going to offer an exhaustive uh, review, but simply list some of the themes discussed over the last several months. First, we have started most, if not all, of our sermons with a reminder of why, just exactly what John's purpose was, including the events recorded here. From John 20, 30 and 31, we'll read again. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me add something here for our benefit as we look at John's presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As in John's day, there are two categories of people who heard and read the gospel. First, there are those who have not yet come to believe or had not yet come to believe in Jesus as the Christ or as the Son of God. They had not, they had not yet had the finished work of Christ applied to them. To this group, we can only proclaim the truth, believing that in his time, that those the Father has given to the Son will be given, 
saving faith. But there's a second group here. <clears throat> These are those of you who have the cross work applied to your hearts by the grace through the gift of faith. You and I believe that Jesus is indeed the promised Christ and that he is indeed the Son of God. This gospel is proclaimed to us so that our faith might increase and that in believing we might be led to worship in spirit and in truth. We have seen Jesus presented in, in the book of John as the eternal word who was with God and is God creating all that is. We have seen Jesus proclaim the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have seen <clears throat> Jesus presented as the perfect Son, the perfect purifier, and the perfect provider. This will be seen through his. This was seen through his first sign, as he presented what the groom could not present at the wedding of Cana. We have seen Jesus' presentation of his body as a temple. <clears throat> that was to be torn down, but then restored, and now endures forever. We have seen Jesus' <clears throat> presentation of the new birth to Nicodemus and the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit that blows as a wind where it wills. We have seen the fourfold love of the Father for this world as demonstrated in the giving of His Son. We have seen the contrasts between those who love darkness because those, their deeds are evil and those who love the light that their righteousness might be manifest. Is this not motive enough already for us to, to bow in worship of the living God? All of the presentations, all that Christ is, all that he has done, ever reminding in the book of John that he was sent by the Father it's not his independent work because he was more loving, but God sent his son, for God indeed is love. <clears throat> Today, we will look at another contrast. As we have read in today's text, there is an obvious contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Evangelist records for us the words of the Baptist again so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that those people in his day would believe and that they would repent, as we will see. He does not so much present the necessity of believing, present, but he presents the object, <clears throat> or more properly put, the person in whom we are to believe. It would be a terrible thing to say believe and not give us the object of that faith. He presents to us the object of our faith, and in doing so, he presents to us the object of our worship. Again, not believe, not worship, but present to us that which is worthy of our trust and our faith, that which is worthy of our worship. He presents to us the one to whom we are to glorify and enjoy both in our faith and by faith in our worship. Here he is, here in our midst this morning. He has called us to worship God. Again, may he through the Holy Spirit grant what he commands. Beginning in verse 22, if you'd like to look, it's on page 1055. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into Judea, countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptized. John also was baptizing at, 
Anon, near Salim, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had yet not been put in prison. I'm just going to restate, break it down, bullet point the obvious. John has given us, the evangelist has given us the location of Christ's ministry, the Judean countryside, and he has given us that activity of Jesus and his, or his disciples of baptizing. He gives us the location and the activity of John the Baptist, who is in Anon near Salim. He tells us that John has not yet been cast into prison, which is simply a chronological footnote, which we don't have time to explore this morning. It's not insignificant, but we can't, as I've been reminded, we can't say it all. So we'll press on. <clears throat> now, these are the raw facts regarding the setting, the stage for the central message. In addition to location and activity, John presents to us a consequence of what is taking place. Verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with us, who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Well, it's a little bit obvious that there was some sort of jealousy, some sort of rivalry going on. These disciples, for some period of time, had followed John and seen the crowds, had been caught up in the excitement of the activities of John. I'm not saying they weren't genuine disciples who, whose, baptize, whose baptism had not represented repentance, uh, but... Here they are, they're concerned about Jesus and his disciples. And so we have the facts again about the narrative, a discussion about purification. And John's rite of baptism was a purification rite. It was a symbol, a sign with meaning of what people were doing. They were repenting. They were being prepared through repentance for the coming of the Savior. But as a result of this discussion, John's disciples not so cryptically express a concern that Jesus is gaining a greater following. At the heart of this concern is what? What we all thrive on, the spirit of competition. <clears throat> they love the glory of winning and despise the agony of defeat. They probably, before they started following John, were mostly nobodies. But by association, they saw something successful. They joined in uh, with John. They heard the testimony or the witness of John concerning Jesus, but apparently something was lost in the hearing. They did not pick up on what John himself had recognized and proclaimed. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I can suggest to you this morning, and only by the grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, that I believe that John, the last of the Old Testament prophets, this bridge between the old and new, uh, saw and recognized and understood something of what Jesus, who he was and what he had come to do. There are nine verses that conclude this section. They are primarily John's response to the spirit of competition. Who is baptizing more? Who has the greatest following? How should John's disciples respond? How should John respond? 
I read as I was studying a, a, a point by Carson. It talks about this discussion about purification. We could get caught up in a whole lot of things this morning. But D.A. Carson, I agree with him when he says, this section is not primarily about baptism. Its major theme is Christology. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're going to, we can cover many things, we can make many applications, and we can go into, down many rabbit trails, but in the, at the end of the day, the reason we're here this morning is to hear from God about His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through these signs, He's presenting Himself as the one sent from the Father. <clears throat> I'll hammer it home. This is written that we might believe, and in believing, I'll change it a little bit, we might worship. One might protest, John says in chapter 20, that in believing we might have eternal life. And this is certainly true. But we would not be correct in answering that eternal life consists, we would not be correct if we did not say that eternal, eternal life consists of unfettered and true worship. Uh, challenge me if you don't agree with that statement, but I'm going to say it again. We would be incorrect to think that eternal life, and I'll go a little more bluntly from the way I was raised, has to do with us not going to hell. It has something to do with us going to heaven. But at the heart of it is to return lost men and women to a point where they worship and appreciate and savor the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, there are many themes and statements that we could point to in a topical way but let me pick up again in verse, John, verse 27. <clears throat> John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above. <clears throat> There's a similar statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The setting is that if you know anything about the letter to the church of Corinth, you know that there was competition. There were those who were following Apollos, and there were those who were following this, and then the ones who were really proud said, we're following Jesus. And then there was competition over the gifts. I can speak in tongues. I can heal. I can prophesy. And so you have this spirit of competition. And right in the middle of it, chapter 13, Jesus talks about love and preferring, humbling oneself and preferring others. It, it reads this way. He speaks of himself and Apollos as servants. And I'll pick up John chapter, I mean, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, and that none of you, that none of you be puffed up in favor of one against the other. And in the next verse, he gives the bottom line. For who sees anything different in you? <clears throat> what do you have that you did not receive? And then you received it, if you received it. Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
I think John, as he looks at Christ and the ministry of Christ, he recognizes several things, and he submits to those things. Excuse me. John is about to present to us the wedding motif. It is found throughout the Old Testament and finds its consummation in the book of Revelation in the chapter that we began with this morning. I was so tempted to go to the garden, to go to the marriage between Abraham and Sarah, Isaac's bringing back of Rebekah, and one of my favorite books, the book of, uh, of Ruth, of the kinsman redeemer, and uh, the picture of Christ as our redeemer. And I was tempted to draw from the book of the Song of Songs, a beautiful and eloquent uh, analogy of Christ's love for his bride and all the provisions he made for us. But we're going to stick with our text this morning. You do this, that's your homework assignment. Trace marriage throughout the scriptures. <clears throat> John is, um, before we continue though, let, us, let me compare John and Jesus. You can, you can dig these things out for yourself. Both John and Jesus were sent. Both were commissioned. They were sent by God. Both John and Jesus were given a message to present. Both John and Jesus had followers who received their message, and they had followers who rejected their message. Both John and Jesus were eventually put to death. Now a contrast. John had a message while Jesus was John's message. John was sent to prepare the way of the Lord, to present and prepare the people to receive the Christ. And yet Christ is the message. John was a forerunner preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus was the fulfillment of the message and the way to the Father. May I suggest to you that John not only knew that he was sent, but accepted with gratitude the role <clears throat> that he was sent to accomplish. He was simply to proclaim the coming of the Christ and proclaim repentance as preparation for his coming. We have a similar sending. Uh, you can refer to the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus told his disciples, even as the Father has sent me, so send I you. John in his first epistle addresses this. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that they did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And here's the bottom line. This is the message that Jesus preached. This is what John is preaching in, his, in this letter. He says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We know that Jesus is presented in many ways in Scripture. He is the eternal Logos, the Word of God. He is the Creator. He is a prophet, priest, and king. He is the temple. He is a good shepherd. And here we have him presented. John presents Jesus to us as the bridegroom. We can learn from John's testimony and how, and how it should lead us to worship. How should this worship result, or maybe this will be the result of our service today? 
I'll not spend a lot of time this morning going over the cultural differences between marriage practices of the Old Testament, the marriage practices of the first century uh, period when Jesus was upon the earth, nor with the wedding practices of our culture today. I will point out something that I've observed, maybe you've observed the opposite, that I think we see both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in a feminist world is criticized. <clears throat> Today, the focus is on the bride. You know, if you've not been your observation, uh, uh, I've seen the, the, from the wedding dresses to the fittings to the planning to the planners to the coordinators to all the things. It's, it's all about the bride. The groom kind of comes in and stands there and waits, but culturally, that's where we are. It was not that way in both the Old and the New Testament. I'm not saying that there was any less value. Uh, you only have to think of uh, Joseph and Mary. Joseph loved Mary, and when he thought that she had committed fornication, out of love and respect, he sought to put away privately. He valued her. Abraham valued Sarah, and when she, he would have balked at some of her uh, instructions, God told him to listen to his wife. So we're not drawing cultural divisions this morning, but we're pointing to the fact that in the New Testament and the Old Testament, the groom received so much responsibility, and obviously, as we've sung this morning, the sentiment is that the bride, that's us, that's you, that's me, we eye not our garments. We might, we might be a part of our modern culture today, but our view, our focus should be on our bridegroom. I can only offer um, the wedding of Cana as example. It would seem that the failure of the groom, if you remember, they ran out of wine, he had not made adequate provisions, was a focal point. Can anybody name the bride? Where is she mentioned? What is her role in this story? I, I'm not denigrating here. I'm just pointing out the fact that our focus ultimately is on the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our bridegroom. And it was at that wedding that we recognize that Jesus, as we've mentioned this before, uh, was a perfect son. He told his mother, my yet time is yet not come. I have been sent. The Father has commissioned me to do a work. And yet he... Did what his mother asked, and uh, he made provision. We, he, and he made provision, as you remember, we said, not by turning water in their glasses, uh, this perpetual fountain of wine in the glasses, but he took uh, vessels of uh, purification, and he turned them into uh, <clears throat> a source of joy uh, in the celebration of the coming of, the, of this wedding consummation. And Jesus is the perfect purifier. Do away the blood of goats and bulls, for he is one time for all paid for our sins. And then we said that he was the perfect provider. In a very temporal way that day, he provided what the groom could not provide. He provided wine. And every sermon, it points out to the fact that it was the best wine. Jesus says, I will not drink of this cup until I enter my kingdom. And I hope that part of being in the kingdom will taste better wine than I've ever tasted here on earth. <clears throat> Side point. John the Baptist in his own way is pointing to the superiority of the groom 
<coughs> over the friend of the groom. And he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't resent this, but he relishes the privilege of being a friend of the groom. In short, John is pointing out that Jesus is the bridegroom by virtue of having the bride. And of course, we know how Jesus got the bride. He paid, in the Old Testament, they would pay it. You can go back in the law and see they would pay a bride price. Uh, people in cultures in the Middle East today still do this. Uh, but he didn't purchase his bride with silver and gold, but by his own precious blood. He was, went away to prepare a place for his bride, and he comes again. The promise is, I'm coming again, that where I am, there you may dwell also. The bride has bought us. The bridegroom has brought up, bought us, and he's coming again. He's preparing a place that we might live with him forever. It is the groom who makes provision for the wedding feast. In the book of Revelation, it's not going to be a potluck supper. We won't make any contribution. God's going to provide all that we need. What is John's response? It is threefold. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. This is reminiscent, or it points, you'll hear this language again in chapter 10, uh, the story of the good shepherd where he says, my sheep know my voice. They will not follow. I know my sheep, my sheep know my voice, and they follow me. But here it says, do you not realize that we, are, we you and I, are the bride of Christ, and yet we are his friends? John 15, later Jesus will say, greater love has, <coughs> has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. <clears throat> That's what he's doing this morning, brothers and sisters. He's speaking to us, his friends, those he loves and gave himself for. So <clears throat> what is the consequence of being a friend? We stand, and we listen, or we kneel, or we bow, or we sit, and we listen for his voice. When I heard these words, I couldn't stand and listen. I, my mind immediately went back to the Exodus story. There, the children of Israel are leaving Egypt, and they've got their backs to the Red Sea. The Egyptian armies are coming, and they're scared to death. And the Lord tells Moses, he says, Stand and see the salvation of the Lord. May every day be a new unfolding as we stand and see in the word of God, by the spirit of God, as he ministers to us the salvation from the Lord. I also couldn't help but think of Mary and Martha. You know the story. It's subject of many sermons. Martha was scurrying around, busy with many activities, and she was put out that Mary was not helping her. But Jesus pointed out that Mary had chosen the better thing. She was sitting at his feet, soaking in and savoring the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I recognize that we're in the world, but in the hustle and bustle of life, we need to stop. We need to stand still. We need to sit down and listen to the voice of the Lord. So he listened, he stood, and he rejoiced. And he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now we speak of the now and the not yet, and we long for the day when our joy will be completely complete. But our joy, because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and we have the body of Christ and because we have Christ himself and the spot, 
We can't see him, and that's the mystery, but he's here this morning speaking to us, and he wants your joy to be full and complete. He wants you to recognize, he wants me to recognize who he is and all of the provisions that he has for us and, and to anticipate his coming again for us. And then, of course, John says his third reaction is, he must increase, I must decrease. I'm just the voice, I'm just the tool, I'm just the instrument, I'm just the ordinary means, but he is the message, he is the one to whom <coughs> I shall point. May I suggest to you this morning that we are invited to share in John's experience. We're invited to hear the voice of God as he speaks to us in these last days through his son. We are invited to sit, to walk, to stand in the word of God that our joy might be full. Isn't this our confession? Isn't this our chief end? That we are to glorify God and enjoy him forever? It's our highest occupation. We are called to glorify God and enjoy him forever, ever. And I'll remind you with all the conviction that I can muster, like a broken record, I'll remind you that our enjoyment can begin today. It does not have to be deferred to some time in the future, but we are invited to enjoy, to savor, to relish, to treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. I like the way John Piper puts it. It's often quoted, but he says, <clears throat> God is most glorified when we are most satisfied with him. What is dissatisfaction with God? What does that speak about? Can you imagine? I'm not satisfied with my life. I'm not satisfied with your provision. I'm not satisfied with you. I'll seek satisfaction somewhere else. I like to put it this way. <clears throat> God is most glorified when we fall find all our delight and in our, our enjoyment in him. Is this not the glorification to God that he increases and we decrease? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. John ends with a comparison of the earthly and the heavenly. This is not some platonic, and I'm not, I assume that you know what I mean, the Platonists saw the physical world as evil and the spiritual world was we get away from the shackles of the physical and we just live in some spiritual idealism. No, God created the earth and pronounced it good. We are both physical and we're spiritual. This is a temple. This is a house of the spirit that lives within us. And one day, if Jesus doesn't come back, we'll be raised and we'll be given physical bodies, glorified bodies like unto his. So it's not some sort of um, platonic contrast of good and evil but it is a comparison of good and the better. It's a matter of superiority. He who comes from above is above. Of course, this is the groom for whom our hearts long. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. We do not follow the things of this world. We're not to, you know, we once walked in, in the... Uh, the ways of the world, following the course of this world, uh, under the power of Satan, uh, drawn away by our own lust, but he's quickened us. He's made us alive with Christ. He who comes from above is above all. He who is from heaven and above is our groom whom we worship. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. It simply said, I don't come to speak my words, but I come to speak what the Father has given me. 
God has spoken to us in his son in these last days, and we must hear him. Notice the word whoever. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives him. This is reminiscent of what he said at the end of chapter 2, where he said he didn't reveal, he knew what was in man, and he did not give himself to them. That sounds like a universal principle, but it's not, because there were those he had already given himself to, his disciples. And there will be many in the course of his ministry that will come to put their faith. But it's, here we have it, verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. The whoever there, there are those who whoever receives, and there are those who reject. Again, it's reminiscent of chapter 3. God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For he, <clears throat> finally, the Father loves the Son and he has given all things into his hand. As we look this morning and we recognize that God has given us into the hand of Jesus, we say, what a lousy gift. Oh, no, brothers and sisters, our worth is not in ourselves. Our worth is in what was paid for us the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our worth is not in ourselves independent of him, but our worth is found in him. Do you know that the Father cannot see us without seeing his Son? He sees us encapsulated in his Son, and his righteousness applied to us this morning. Finally, we see the words repeated here again. It is referring to two groups of people. Yeah. Going wrong, going the wrong way. Forgive me. Verse 36. Two groups of people. And you find this throughout the scriptures. There were the Jews and the Gentiles. There are those who believe and those who don't believe. We can't apply text universally to everybody because they're heard and they're received in two different veins. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. For those of you who have not received his testimony and have not obeyed the Son in repentance and faith, there remains for you wrath and you will not see life. But it's never too late. Today is a day of salvation. Receive, believe, repent, trust. In the Lord Jesus Christ, may the Holy Spirit grant it be. But for those of us who have believed in the Son, today, right now, we have eternal life. Unbeliever, believe. Believers, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We begin this morning with the end. We begin in our call to worship, our destiny. There's a wedding feast. Uh, I've said this before. I'm going to be a blushing bride. Uh, never been a bride before, but I'm a part of the bridegroom collectively. Uh, we're, we're going to be wed and consummated in our marriage feast to the Lamb. May it, this awareness be our daily practice. Father, we do pray now that you would seal up your word to our hearts and that it might have your purposes fulfilled in us. I'll ask you to stand with me again and we'll sing...